Welcome to Partnering Leadership, a top global leadership podcast for purpose-driven leaders with a growth mindset, seeking to learn from the leadership journey of change makers and business insights from leading global thinkers. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com. Now, here is your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Jennifer Brown. Jennifer is the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of How to Be an Inclusive Leader, Your Role in Creating Cultures of Belonging Where Everyone Can Thrive. And as Jennifer says, instead of us ignoring or denying our differences, we need to acknowledge that we all have identities that impact our experience in the world and in the workplace. And it's through that acknowledgement and connection where we can work to build cultures of belonging. I really enjoyed this conversation because I believe that belonging is one of the superpowers of the most effective teams and the healthiest organizational cultures. I'm sure you will enjoy the conversation too. I also love hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahan at mahantavakoli.com. There's a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. You can leave voice messages for me there. Don't forget to follow the podcast. Tuesday conversations with magnificent change makers from the greater Washington, D.C., DMV region, and Thursday conversations with brilliant global thought leaders like Jennifer. Now, here's my conversation with Jennifer Brown. Jennifer Brown, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Really looking forward to talking about how to be an inclusive leader, your role in creating cultures of belonging where everyone thrives. Before we get to your book, though, would love to know a little bit about your upbringing, Jennifer, and how your upbringing impacted the kind of person and leader you've become. Oh, thank you for that question. I know my parents would say we had everything to do with it. (laughs) Honestly, they really did in some ways. I was raised very fortunately. I was born into and had the accident of birth into a situation where I was shown so much of the world. I got to avail myself of all the educational opportunities, travel lessons and various things. I was a performing artist. So I was constantly performing and rehearsing and studying, whether it was dance and piano and the choir and just so many different pieces of the performing arts. And I would ultimately 20s really pursue a life as a performing artist and specifically as an opera singer. Looking back, the discipline of it, the show must go on mentality gave me a ton of resilience and I think consistency because that is the nature, right? Rehearsal performance, rehearsal performance. <laughs> And at the same time, real creativity in the moment, the ability to just be on stage and make it work, which is interesting in light of the fact that I've become a keynoter and a speaker (laughs) for a living because I get all kinds of unexpected moments and being able to really handle them with grace and turn them into teachable moments and not get flustered and see it through is something I really give credit to the way I was raised. I give the credit absolutely to that. But I would also say I grew up in a place that was extremely pretty conservative and very white majority. 
And I think I had my awakenings in college around my own feminism and my own coming out as LGBTQ. All of that happened in my early 20s and began to look more critically at what had been missing from my life and what I hadn't been exposed to and how I deeply wanted equality and change for myself as I began to understand my own story, but then also taking that on in general for what would become my work in the world. So when I transitioned out of singing because I got vocal surgeries, I had to reinvent. And what I reinvented into was this study of organizations and how to be a change agent for systems. And that would just become this perfect fit because I could perform, I can bring my passion for change and equity. And I could also explore my own origin story of privilege, but also the other pieces of me that didn't feel heard. There was no place for when I was growing up and in the world, and there was no safety for. It all has come together beautifully, but of course, hindsight is 2020. (laughs) (laughs) I did not feel like that at many points. (laughs) What a beautiful example of anti-fragility in that you were an aspiring opera singer had the most devastating thing that could happen to someone happen to you with respect to the vocal surgery and the impact that had on changing the trajectory of your life. But you became better as a result of that, being able to give back to the world in a very beautiful way. And you are right. When we look at it in past tense, it feels good. I'm sure at that moment, it didn't feel that great. Definitely not. (laughs) Jennifer, before we can have an impact on other people, we have to have that awakening ourselves. You Mm -hmm. talked about some of that awakening you had in college. What was that experience like for you? I don't get to talk about it that much. And so I appreciate the question. When I took a women's studies class in, I think, sophomore year, And just felt like my world had been turned upside down. It was one of those, the sort of 180 degree turns because I'd been shown a different way of looking at the way I had been raised, the way we as women are socialized. And I should say my pronouns are she, her. So I'm I'm a cisgender woman, but still wrestling with that identity, coming to understand the power structure and the power dynamics and gender issues and the role that had been laid out for me. Choosing then to go another direction was a very clear call to action for me. I felt it strongly. I never went back. I never looked back. And I began to question all the things that had been laid out for me and choices and expectations and assumptions and began to find my agency and my voice at that point to say, if I could architect my life, what would it look like? What will be important to me? How will I not rely on these norms, but also on other people of various genders to be a part of that? And then I think coming out as LGBTQ, which I did in my senior year of college, so shortly thereafter, also felt like to me an honoring of my authenticity, a commitment to my path and my choice to walk through that door and follow through that, follow my heart and what it wanted And then seeking in my 20s, certainly music, but also I had a series of roles in nonprofits. I was all about mission and purpose and making the world a better place because I had been awakened. I think it took many years to go back and understand the role that privilege played throughout all that. The fact that I was in college, the fact that I could be exposed to these things and have my awakening, the fact that I could come out and because of my other identities that protect me, not be in danger in the same way. 
and not be even discriminated against in the same way. But that would take the maturity that would happen in the subsequent years. I did not have any clue about that at the time. And this was a really long time ago. Not a lot of people were talking about this. Maybe they were, but I wasn't exposed to that. So we just didn't have the language back then to have all of this context. I'm so grateful that now we do. I think that just reset my direction in my life, following my true identities. Then over the years, I would become more bold with those identities. I was very afraid, like all of us are, and many of us still are, who are closeted in our lives and our workplaces with our employers, with our colleagues, with our clients. It's a long process. And I think it's honestly why I started my own company, because the freedom you need to really bring all of who you are so that you can do what you need to do in the world I felt it very confining to be an employee and be able to do that. And that felt extremely important to me. It would turn out, as we've seen, it would be very important because I had so much bigger of a thing to say than I was afforded in these rigid structures. Performance career, very rigid structure. (laughs) So rigid that I was typecast all the time as the 18-year-old sister. I was typecast (laughs) based on my physical appearance. And it was certainly not fulfilling roles. I'll just say that. Not the meaty ones that you hope to get. But I also was terrified that if I were out and I tried to have a career as a singer, I would be not cast. There was a lot of fear around all of us at the time around what if they know. It's just the hiding is intense. The hiding continued through my corporate roles and into owning my own business. But casting all that off and finding my community of LGBTQ people people who are trying to better the workplace, better employers, better their environments, always gravitating to people who are standing up and pushing on the systems taught me so much. And I still carry all of that with me. I still know a lot of those folks from 20 years ago, early in the movement for workplace equality, and never feel alone because I know that there's even bigger group of people pushing to create change. So Yeah, it was a lot, but it started in college. And isn't it amazing how we can just have these moments of truth and never be the same again? You used your moment of truth, Jennifer, to make a difference through the company you started, through much of the content that you have been writing and sharing. So you're a leader in the space. One of the things I appreciate in your book is that you mentioned your role in creating cultures of belonging, meaning every one of us can play a role. And you opened the book with the James Baldwin quote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. (laughs) It's good, right? (laughs) I love it because we need to face up to some of the equity issues we have that need to be addressed on an ongoing basis. So with respect to that, Jennifer, there has been more of an awakening over the past couple of years around these issues. At the same time, there are people who are building antibodies to any conversation around equity. They say, we go to the talks, don't say anything and just nod, because if we say anything, we are going to be the ones that are ostracized. So my question to you is, how can we bring more people along, not just the people who have already bought in to the importance and the need for greater equity in our society? Yeah, that is where the work is, not the choir, as we say, but it's the others who do remain quiet 
these days more than ever, or I might argue the opposite. I think sometimes people are more emboldened now to say what they've been thinking and it hasn't been acceptable to say. So it really depends on the environment you find yourself in. I think the challenge comes to us, the teachers, to meet people where they are and invite the evolution that we know is possible, but invite it in a way that aids and coaxes and compels and inspires, shines a light. One of my friends describes that there's two kinds of change makers. There's those that work with heat and there's those that work with light. I work with light. It's just my modality and it's my energy and it's my belief about how change happens. It's not the only way, but the light is the invitation to take that hard look at ourselves that you were just asking about, face that in ourselves, nothing that is not faced can be changed. Facing how was I raised? What do I believe? Is it true? Is it holding me back? Is it holding others back? Is it preventing me from being more effective or reaching my own potential as a leader? So your role in creating Cultures of Belonging was very intentional because I felt I wanted to write the book for people who were not feeling they understood their role and were absolutely believing they don't have a role. I wanted to invite that in to say, actually, you do, but it doesn't need to be negative, scary, burdensome, cause fear and trepidation or even necessarily shame, which I think is important emotion, but it has a particular role in change, but alongside all these other things. So inviting that interaction with folks, really listening and really understanding where the source of resistance is really critical information from which we can jump off and provide whatever's needed based on where someone may be stuck. It could be stuck because of values, beliefs, religion, experience, a lack of exposure. It could be very innocuous things. It doesn't always come from a place of, I hate you and everything you're saying at all. (laughs) It's more that it has never been presented in such a way, perhaps, that resonates and that really connects the dots or that addresses that person's questions and doubts and skepticism. I think that is incumbent on us as teachers and facilitators of the learning to really tune into that. You talk about anti-fragility. When you have to remove your ego, your triggers as a teacher and just put that to the side and just be, listen and support, that is really very difficult to do. I think is what we all have to get good at. I actually think it's beautiful that we get to develop our ability to do that because In my own personal relationship, that's very helpful to do. We get into trouble when our ego and our emotions take over. And I think this work calls on us to be the eye of the storm and really hold this peaceful space and this gracious space and invite others into that space and kind of protect it while another human is feeling seen and heard and acknowledged for where they are. Because somebody has done that for all of us. I always think about that space has been made for me in the past. And I have been deeply appreciative of it. What a gift. It is incumbent on us to do that. So I always encourage people, I mentor, pay attention to what you believe about change. Like, what do you believe? How do you think people change? What's your philosophy of change? And how has that been for you? What has worked for you? We'll each answer that question differently. And I think that's also the beauty of this field is where the heat and the light There's so much variety in the messengers here. 
Some people may hear from me. Some people may hear from you. They might hear it differently. They might believe you and not me. It's fine. Like I don't have to be the one (laughs) that cracks the code as long as the code is cracked. It's just a very inclusive way also to approach change as a team effort and knowing we each kind of unlock things in our own way and with different learners. And it's hard to predict, but I think you can plan for it. You can be strategic about it. And why we have a lot of wonderful consultants on my team who identify in so many different ways and who are a combination of the heat and the light and tackle these things in their way. I love the way you put it, Jennifer. It requires moving beyond our egos and allowing space for these conversations. Now, one of the challenges that I find with many of the people that I interact with is that they don't engage in conversations because they say, I'm willing to engage with conversations with people whose values are similar, but their values are different. And you can take the there to any side of the conversation. So it's not just one side to another. How can we engage and make space moving beyond that ego, showing the sincere curiosity and interest to engage in conversations when we believe that the values are different? That is a big challenge in workplaces, for example, where the company has made a commitment, which is often the kinds of clients I work with. There's a commitment that's been stated, that's been publicized. And then what they're trying to do is align everyone in a certain direction to support that commitment. Sometimes even to your point, value statements. We believe in this, we believe in that, et cetera. We get into trouble though, when we don't differentiate between personal values, company values, and then also behaviors. I think that that values can be held, but I do think when we are enacting leadership in a certain context where we're hired to support the values of an organization, our personal values are never unimportant, certainly, but to me, they can be what they are. However, when we're eating in a context and in an environment and there's a commitment, we have these goals. Demographically, we want our workforce to look like the world that we serve. So companies get it and they're pushing that direction because they see the future and they're trying to line it up and there's a lot of skirmishes going on in that. But sometimes I have to say to, to leaders, you have a job to do as a leader and inclusive leadership is part of your responsibility and maybe accountability depending on the company. And you will be measured according to your skill in this. And frankly, I almost don't care what somebody's personally held values are because in the workplace, what we need to encourage and exhibit are the inclusive behaviors. To me, one is about skilled leadership. It's about how do I get the best out of the most diverse group of people so that we can create together and we can innovate and we can anticipate. And how can I do that well? Like, how do I orchestrate that? To me, that's a skill. Would I love to have you also believe that it's the right answer? Absolutely. But I'm not sure it's required. And if you're on a journey, say you're on a journey with your own religion, say vis-a-vis LGBTQ inclusion, you believe in something and maybe you're questioning what you've always been taught, maybe not, but you work in an organization that values LGBTQ people 
and their inclusion. (laughs) When you step into leadership, you need to see yourself differently in the system and your goal is different. What you need to deliver on is different. And you can opt out of that job if it becomes too uncomfortable and it becomes too much of a clash between the organization's goals, values, targets, mission, vision, how they're holding you accountable and your own personal beliefs, then you can make a choice to say, I'm uncomfortable in this system. And that's totally fine. But I hope most folks get that distinction and they're willing to practice inclusive leadership as a practice. Maybe personally, they're coming along. I know plenty of people, I think, that would call themselves inclusive leaders that still struggle with understanding different gender identities. Maybe they have some biases around that. Maybe they don't agree that it's important to share our pronouns. But to me, those people often can and will pivot, change, and grow through exposure, support, and encouragement. I've seen that happen. I know that it can happen. I just try to parse this out and say, if you work for yourself and you have total autonomy from the world, maybe you don't need to pay attention to this, but I might even argue if you're an entrepreneur and you're building a company and you have certain beliefs and values, I don't know if you're going to strike a chord that you want to strike to attract and retain people, to grow your team, to grow your customers. If you, at the very least, you may not believe it in your heart, but if you're in the very least, you have not thought about your business proposition through that lens, because it's going to hurt. It will probably hurt your business given the changes that are going on in the world. If you can run your business without taking that into account, fine, go for it. (laughs) But normally I'm brought in to say, hey, the world is changing. Let's get on even the caboose of the train. Let's like, let's just get on. And you may not have an answer and you may disagree with a lot of this stuff, but just start listening and opening up the aperture and saying, what could be possible if I take this on board? Whether I agree or disagree with it, to me, agree, disagree is not terribly helpful. But I think we all get stuck in that piece rather than looking at this as a response to change around us. I appreciate the fact that you mentioned it's a practice and that practice is exhibited in behaviors. It gets us out of the attempt at reading minds, intentions, and values, and looking at the practice. As you said, we are all on a journey of growth in this practice. So allowing the opportunity for others to come along, as long as the behaviors align with what the organization and team wants. We don't necessarily need to be guessing about people's uh, perceptions of their values or intentions. Mm. I know that's a weird way to describe it, but I do think maybe our personal beliefs because of how we were raised, we know we're lagging behind. And we may have been taught certain things that are very sacred to us. But I do believe though, to be relevant, to continue to thrive, we're all going to be challenged no matter what age we are, generation, identity. And some of us actually who maybe are white and male and cisgender and have grown up in a world that has really catered to us, we are being challenged. We are being challenged with change. And in many ways, some of us, because of this identity, we are behind in our understanding and have to grapple more with this change that's upon us. I don't think we all have a choice. We can deny that change is happening. I don't think that's very helpful (laughs) as a strategy. So I always say, hey, it's changing. And the question to me is, so anybody who's worth 
their salt as a leader changes with the times and ideally ahead of the times. Ideally, the best leaders we know are asking what's next after what's next. Where will we be? Where will I need to be in two, three, five years? How will I need to lead? What will I need to know how to do that I don't know how to do today? What will I need to feel comfortable doing and confident doing five years from now? For example, you may have a global team, a global multiracial, multicultural, multinationality team, multi-generations. And I want each leader I speak to, to be successful when that time comes. And I don't want anyone to be behind. So my encouragement then is to say, let's begin to get prepared. Let's begin to invest in this so that the muscle is ready. We are like right on the starting line when these challenges happen and we don't mess around and dither and waste time because we thought this day would never come. Like the day is coming. The day has already come. (laughs) And some (laughs) leaders are like, oh yeah, it's happening. I can tell you, I can see them like rolling their eyes. And anytime I bring up younger generation talent, I get all kinds of interesting reactions. (laughs) to say, this isn't another world. Like, I don't understand how to lead anymore. I don't even know how to be because how I was trained to do this that I do is no longer working. And that's a wonderful opportunity and invitation to say, what's missing from your toolkit and how can we invest in that? That's a wonderful place for people to be in, in your inclusive leader continuum. That's the aware space, which is outstanding. But before that, it's the unaware in the continuum. We start out with the unaware. And there is a 13th century Persian poet, Jennifer, who talks about those who are unaware and unaware of being unaware or don't know that they don't know how their ignorance will last into oblivion. The main point being, a lot of us are unaware that we are unaware. So (laughs) what are ways for us to at least move out of that unawareness and recognize the need of becoming an inclusive leader? It's so good. It reminds me of this model probably too. It's the unconscious incompetence model. (laughs) So unaware is unconscious incompetence. I don't know what I don't know. (laughs) And then the aware, the next phase is now I know what I don't know. So that's called conscious incompetence, (laughs) which is maybe even more uncomfortable, right? It's more scary when you know you don't know it. (laughs) A lot of times I wish I would go back to unaware. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, totally. I can relate. I can relate. I know. I feel you. So much. I want to go back to sleep, right? Don't we all yeah. coddled in a way by our own kind of comfort and understanding of the world? So how do we see ourselves in the unawareness? I try to make the point in aware that there are certain areas to investigate as we come out of unaware, like assuming we all have bias. If you're human, you're biased. That's a fact. When I'm not pointing a finger and saying you're a bad person because you're biased, but just the framing of that to say it's quote unquote normal. Don't love that word, but if uninvestigated, it is normal. It is something we all have. It is something we are often unconscious to, although sometimes it is conscious bias, of course, but often it's unconscious, meaning it's unintended, but it's not examined. 
So I think that the examined life, the examined self, the examined environment around us, like often I'll say, if you stepped outside of the world that you function in, do you look at it and say, wow, there are certain things that work for me. There are certain things that keep me safe in this system. There are certain rules that I understand, like unwritten rules. And maybe I also let myself off the hook and say, why do I need to change this world? It works for me. And then that is a choice. This kind of comes down to an existential question of, do you believe we're going forward together or are we going forward alone? That beautiful African proverb, you want to go further, go together. If you want to go fast, go alone. It's tempting, I think, to be extremely individualistic. And that's our culture, isn't it? We're such an individualistic sort of cowboy, cow personal <laughs> society where we are the rugged individualists. That was the founding of this country in the US at least. So having that collective responsibility, that consciousness, that awareness of what somebody else may be experiencing in the exact same system, sometimes that awakens empathy. Sometimes it awakens action. Sometimes it falls on ears that don't hear it. Again, it comes back to how you want to change, how you want to evolve, what you want your legacy to be. Sometimes it's helpful to speak to people about whether they care about and think about how they're leaving things better than they found it. Sometimes the pushback and unaware is, I didn't get this. That wasn't what it was like for me. And why do I need to change? <laughs> or you're asking me to change too fast. I get that a lot, a lot. Just the other week, a senior leader said, Jennifer, where does it end? First, I have to do this. Then I have to do this. Then I have to understand all of these experiences and use different language. And like, and you've done hard things. <laughs> you're literally a senior leader and you're telling me this is too much for you. Like you really can't take it on. Sounds more like you won't really. Okay. So that's, that might be where you are today. I would invite you to reflect on that. And as a leader, it's really very harmful to have that attitude because everybody is watching others to see, is this possible? What does it look like in practice? Is there a role model I can follow who looks like I do? Who is on their journey and making that journey visible? This is why I invest so much in leaders because I know so many eyes are on them. So many people are looking to see, is somebody willing to talk about their journey out of unaware to aware? And how bravely are they sharing how the sausage is made, where they're coming from, what do they disagree with? What do they not understand? What are they wrestling and grappling with? If we could create enough space to hear, see, and witness people in their evolution, it would make it okay for a lot of us to talk about our evolution. And we would all need to band together to not shame and blame for having the questions we have, not being criticized for asking these questions and wondering or having doubts, but instead being met with listening, kindness, space holding, and partnership, doing this learning and relationship to others. So all of that I've just outlined is my vision for how we awaken leaders, but then it's hard. You want to give up so many times. You want to go back to safety. You want to get out of the heat. You also want assurances somehow that everything I do is going to go well. And one of the most important messages in my talks is perfectionism is not even within the realm of the possible. <laughs> and I hate to tell you, I know we want to pat ourselves in the back. We want to be recognized. We want to say, oh, I checked that off my, my the box. I've achieved this. Look at me. 
none of this works that way. And it makes it also really counterintuitive given the way we've been rewarded in the past and incentivized throughout our careers is to be able to complete the task, to move on, to get the recognition. And this is more of a journey you have to settle into and develop the resilience to bounce back, the flexibility and the agility, the lack of fragility, the anti-fragility to receive learning and come back and experiment and try not succeed and look at that as breadcrumbs along our journey so that we can make ourselves better. Unconscious incompetence can feel like it's safety, but honestly, it's actually risky to stay there. And I also love to be able to make the point when leaders push back and say, this is too much risk for me. Like I can't take the risk on of being wrong or having it not go well or being in such a visible position that I don't have the answers. And I say, but what is the risk of not doing this? What is the risk of staying in this place and leading in the exact same way you've always led, but in a completely shifted environment? Let's talk about that risk. (laughs) And as a practitioner, you've now heard them so many times that you're ready and you can almost read people's minds and understand where they're stuck. But at the end of the day, I hope empathy is awakened. How can you learn about how certain people are not seen and heard and don't have equity in our system? And the real question should be, now what can I do about it? If I can get folks to there, then we're having a much more interesting conversation to me, which is okay. So now that we know that's true, we're in conscious incompetence. And then we want to move to conscious competence, which is the third stage, which is active of the continuum. And that conscious competence is I'm going to try, I'm going to learn, I'm going to jump in, I'm going to begin to get involved, I'm going to use my voice, but it's super awkward. And like, I don't know how it's going to go. And I have to just be in it anyway. To me, that's bravery, that's courage, that's heart-centered leadership. That's all the things we think of when we think of good leaders in our lives. Those are the people that we cherish. So inclusive leadership is good leadership. This is not something that's separate and apart from some of the core tenets of the leaders we always all wanted to work with and be. It is a big part of that great leadership you talk about, Jennifer, as you mentioned. It's the awakening of that empathy in us that also helps increase some of that awareness. One of the points that you mentioned is that this is not necessarily for one subgroup or another. It is for all of us to increase our awareness. None of us have mastered it. So having that understanding by itself makes the conversation more accessible to more people. When one group or another feels that it is for them to become more aware, that's when they put up their guards and defend the unawareness (laughs) even more. So it is for all of us. It is for Jennifer, it's for Mahan, for every one of us to have the humility you talk about to have that awareness as that first part. Now, the other point you mentioned, which is really important, you say the ability and choice to remain on the sidelines is a privilege available to some, not to all. Mm -hmm. So we also need to recognize that, yes, we could remain silent on the sidelines, but that is a privilege. We should be aware of that fact. So in order to be more active, 
you mentioned leaning into vulnerability. You also talk about the power of storytelling. Would mm. love to get your thoughts on the role storytelling can play in us taking a more active role in becoming inclusive leaders. That is often the most uncomfortable part. Many leaders say, Jennifer, I don't have a story. They'll say, I'm not diverse. And I'll say, hold on, let's define that word. And uh, there's not diverse people and not diverse people. (laughs) We have been talking about it this way for a long time. People can be forgiven for not seeing themselves in this. And that's one of the things that needs to change. That's exactly the point, Jennifer. That's why some of those previous conversations had alienated some people to say, this is not for me. Exactly. So storytelling to your question, some leaders will say, I talk about this all the time. I do that. And I say, where do you get those talking points from somebody else? Are you just regurgitating (laughs) what you're supposed to say? The storytelling makes it real, personal, vulnerable. It requires us to look into how we were raised, our biases, but also our own perhaps even invisible diversity story, even invisible to ourselves. It's incredible to me the number of people who over the last couple of years have come to terms with their mental health. They've come to terms with their own neurodiversity, not having even been diagnosed or had a word or a term for that. Their children, their family members. I think we've all been diving into our own stories of adversity and understanding those more and more in the context of things that have been overcome, ways that we haven't been insiders in the system. But a lot of that isn't apparent from our skin color or our gender presentation. A lot of that we've kept way in the background. But leaders struggle with storytelling because they say, okay, Jennifer, that's fine. So we all have a diversity story. But if I share mine, A, it's super uncomfortable, of course, but B, it's not anywhere near as severe as what other people's diversity dimensions have caused in their life. And my friend Kenji Oshino, I love him. He says, we can't go down the pain Olympics road (laughs) and and get stuck in my story doesn't matter. My identity doesn't matter. It doesn't have anything to do with how I lead and how I show up and how I understand this. That's never true. It matters. And it not only matters for us to put the pieces of ourselves together so that we can understand where we came from, what informs who we are, what we've overcome, what we're proud of, how we identify. But it also is so critical to storytell if we are ready to, because it shines a light for others to feel less alone. You know, that leader who has dyslexia, that leader who never finished college, that leader who lost a child to suicide, that leader who is a single parent or caregiving and experienced the pandemic in a very different way or has awakened to what's happening in the world through a loved one or a a team member who came out as trans and their learning curve as they supported this individual. There's so many opportunities to storytell. And even storytelling about privilege is really powerful. I've started doing that and trying to role model for some of these leaders who think they don't have a diversity story. When you don't have a diversity story, to me, that means there's a whole lot of privilege there. And that's so rich in terms of something to be tapped to begin to verbalize, but that can be extremely terrifying (laughs) for people. So I've been doing it and experimenting with mine and saying, I'm LGBTQ and I'm cisgender female. And those identities have caused me to have to really find my place and struggle to have my place. 
but I'm so proud of them. Would never trade experience for anything. It has given me my own story to use. But I also was raised in these certain ways that have allowed me to be an insider. And every chance I get, I will talk about like how I enact my insider role. When do I feel it? When do I know it's there? When do I understand the power that I have that other people may not? And it's not about, oh, I deserve this. I worked hard for this, whatever. It doesn't go down the road of I'm a bad person because I grew up in a certain way. What I want to talk about is how are you using what you've been given to create more equity around you? So once we awaken to the gap, to the disparity, we begin to study that, we begin to understand it, and we begin to activate it. What are we utilizing as our tools? And I think it's so important to mentor, to sponsor, to lift up, to make space for, to champion, to hate for more representation. And if you are an insider in any of those systems, for whatever reason, it's incumbent on us because sometimes you're the only one in the room that is clued in enough to say, time out, have we looked at who's around this table? Have we looked at our slate of candidates? Have we looked at our customer demographic and how it's changing and how we're falling behind? Some of us are not in that room. So if we get in that room and we can actually advocate, like that's the opportunity. None of what I just said should make anybody feel like they're a bad person. In fact, these are assets that are completely accessible to us right this moment. This is not something that requires extra work. It may require some strategic planning to sit down with yourself and say, if I'm understanding privilege with a small p as something we all have access to in different ways, what am I doing today, tomorrow, every week, every month to make more space, to elevate, to address, to challenge? How am I doing that? Everyone has a diversity story. Those stories are in us. They're in our loved ones. They can be about privilege. They can be about what's easier for us in this world. And when we begin to talk about that, it literally lets the air out of the balloon in the room. It's just this beautiful moment where people say, oh, okay, so now I'm learning about my own position in the system and what's needed of me. And I begin to see it. You got to see it to be it. We always say that, but we say that in terms of those of us who are underrepresented. But you also have to see it to be it, to see leadership and leaders who know what to do with what they have access to. That is an incredibly powerful example that we don't see enough of and we don't hear enough spoken about more openly. And a lot of leaders, they don't want to brag about it. They don't want to take up space and talk about things like this. But we always have to balance when we step in and when we step back and when we step to the side, it just depends. There's no one answer. What I want to see is the knowing and okay, where am I needed here? That storytelling is critical, whether it is in getting other people to share their stories or the leaders having the authenticity to share theirs in order to then be able to become true advocates. As you quote Frederick Douglass toward the end of your book, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. This is going to be a struggle. So in addition to your book, Jennifer, would love to know, are there any other leadership practices or resources you typically find yourself recommending to leaders as they want to learn to become more inclusive leaders? Thank you for asking. There are. 
For example, the Harvard Implicit Association Test, A-H-I-A-T, is a very famous tool that's free online. And it will give you some pretty shocking (laughs) information about how biased or not you may think you are. To your point, it's challenging. It's really challenging to look at ourselves in these contexts, but so important to open our eyes. Some other authors, I love their work, and I think it's so relevant to inclusive leadership. Carol Dweck's work, D-W-E-C-K, on growth mindset. Growth mindset is failing forward. It's literally pushing forward when you don't know how it's going to go. You don't know the outcome. And nevertheless, it's that resilience and flexibility. I love the conscious incompetence model. Look it up. It's very famous. I also think the five stages of grief is really interesting because we may experience this as a grieving process. That defensiveness, the anger, the denial, Every time I look at that model, I think, oh my goodness, that's DEI work. It's all just there and it's decades old. It's a very famous structure for a reason because we are losing something perhaps. And perhaps what we lose is our old sense of self. Perhaps it's an old sense of security. Perhaps it's an old comfort. But I do think it's a beautiful challenge for growth. DEI is such a a laboratory for our own evolution just in general. It expands our hearts. It stretches our minds. It keeps us young. I'm in a certain generation where I do think sometimes we believe that we're set. I'm baked as the human I'm going to be, the leader I'm going to be. But we are living so much longer now and we have so much wisdom to contribute, but we have to work a bit harder to connect back into the world and how it's changing. But that keeps us so sharp and so fresh. It's not about having the answers. It's about asking the powerful questions please go forward with that. Know that you do not have to have the answers. You don't have to be perfect at all. Read Brene Brown. It's another resource around her vulnerability research as being so compelling in terms of what people follow. What people resonate with is not what we think. And a lot of us have to awaken to that and lean into that. And it's going to be really unfamiliar and foreign, but it is transformative. I appreciate the recommendations, most especially the growth mindset, Carol Dweck, that failing forward Mm -hmm. is a big part of our own journeys, whether in becoming more inclusive leaders or other aspects of life. Would love to know where the audience can find out more about you, your consulting, your book. Where can the audience find out more about you, Jennifer? Thank you. This has been so lovely, Mahan. Thank you for having me. I have now four books. You can read about those on Amazon or other independent bookstores that you may patronize. And the podcast is called The Will to Change. So I'm in the fourth year now and hundreds of guests later, and we're having a blast over there. And in all the socials, I'm very active. So LinkedIn communities, Facebook, Jennifer Brown Consulting is the name of my company. Jennifer Brown Speaks on Instagram and Jennifer Brown on Twitter. I did get that handle many moons ago. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow I figured that out. I don't know how still to this day, but please, I'd encourage everybody to get on our mailing list, become involved in our community, in our calls, in our educational series, in our thought leadership. Please join us because it's a full of practitioners, aspiring practitioners, people who may not want to do this for their job, but really want to incorporate this into whatever we're building, whether it's our consulting practice or we're entrepreneurs or educators, lots of parents love our stuff. 
lots of Tesla bar stuff, please just engage and find me wherever you connect in with your own resources as you learn. And I'm really happy to meet each and every one of you. I appreciate the great work that you've done in this space, Jennifer, and your book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader, your role in creating cultures of belonging where everyone thrives. And my challenge to everyone listening is, yes, lead change and be a force for good in your communities and your organization and your team. But I would underline your role So focus first and foremost on yourselves, as I need to focus first and foremost on myself. We each are on a journey and we can move ourselves along first before we try to move others along. Really appreciate you in this conversation, Jennifer Brown. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. If you enjoyed this episode, Please leave a rating and review of the podcast on your favorite podcasting app and forward the conversation to a friend or colleague so you can help more people discover their purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.